Good morning, Southbridge. How are we doing this morning? If uh, you are new with us this morning, I would encourage you to take a moment to fill out the connection card and uh, take that to the guest kiosk in the lobby. Uh, so we'd encourage you to take a moment to do that. And please, we'd encourage you also to read over the bulletin. And there's lots of announcements in there, things that we view as important that we would like for you to know. Uh, my name is Josh Tovey, and I've been on staff here at Southbridge for two months now. And my wife, Stephanie, and I have the awesome privilege of working with the student ministry here. Um, the student ministry is called Southbridge Youth United, also known as SYU. And uh, we are extremely passionate about students, 6th through 12th grade. And we're about connecting them to Jesus because we know that the gospel is where you find life change. And if you are a 6th to 12th grader and want to jump into this ministry, we would love to have you come out tonight from 6.30 to 8.30 and uh, we'll give you a free pizza and make sure that you go home full. And, uh, but we would love to get to know you and love on you. And uh, we have a lot of leaders that are excited to meet you and have you be a part of this ministry as well. Well, today we want to talk about uh, the tro- a trophy life. How many of you have ever won a trophy before? Anyone? Okay, four of you. Okay, that's good. All right. Um, how many of you like to win? All right. When you play a game, how many of you are playing to win? So think to yourself for a moment. If you play a game with your spouse, you're playing to win. If you play a game with your fourth grade son, play basketball in the driveway, you play to win. Anyone like that here? Okay. All right. It's all about winning, right? And that also describes me. Right? When I think about my life, it's, I've always wanted to win. And what's true of me, and it may also be true of you, is if winning is not an option, you would choose not to play. I remember when I was in elementary, I, the first level of soccer that I played, um, everyone got to play, and they didn't really care about the score. And I went home after one season of that to my dad, and I'm like, Dad, this isn't working for me. Um, there's, winning isn't that big of a deal in this league. I'm like, this isn't going to work. I need something else. And uh, some of you can probably resonate with that. How many of you would be able to resonate with this, that you would choose not to play with people like me? Anyone? All right. Okay. Some of you may choose may choose that as well. But what's the point and the purpose of loving to win? Is that you get the trophy, you get the hardware, but the real thing that we love is that we get to glory in the win. Right? We get to be the one that gets the glory, and that leads us to the question that we want to be to get after this morning, which is this. Who's receiving the glory in your life? Who in your life right now is receiving the glory. And we have to define what we mean by that. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so what does the word glory mean? The word glory simply means weight. That we can look over this amazing creation that we are a part of, and everywhere we look, we can see the weight of who our God is, that he is extremely heavy, that he is extremely huge, that he is a big deal. And so every moment of every day that you take a moment and stare at the creation that we're a part of, we have the opportunity to compare the weight of who we are to the weight of who God is, and that God is more weighty than we are. Now, another word that describes the word glory is the word boast. All right, the word boast means to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, and abilities, right? The opportunity to boast about your greatness. 
All right, and what we're going to be encouraged with today is that God is calling us to bring him glory, to cast the weight of who we are upon him, to be in a position because of the gospel where we can boast about the greatness of our Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to, uh, to Philipp- Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up uh, starting in verse 2. And what we're going to see this morning is uh, Paul is talking to some of his friends at the church of Philippi. This is a group of people that have experienced life change through the gospel of Jesus and they absolutely love the gospel and they love Paul. And Paul is warning them in a stern way about a group of people called the Judaizers that want to come into this church and cause a mess. They want to get the people that have experienced life change by the gospel to be all about the rules. And that's what Judaizers were about. They were about against the gospel and all about the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And they they believed that spiritual progression in your life only took place through obedience to the rules. Right, so it wasn't tied to the cross of Christ at all. It was only tied through your actions. And so Paul is going encouraging his friends by going after the Judaizers. He says this in verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We see three times the word look out pops up. Right? He says, look out for the dogs first. He's calling the Judaizers dogs. What is a dog? A dog were, was just a, it's an animal right? that eats garbage and trash of the city in the Bible times. They just kind of wandered and did their own thing. They would, um, he's describing the Judaizers as a dog because they are shameless, they're impure, they're greedy. And so he's getting after them. He says, look out for the dogs. And then he says this, look out for the evildoers. An evildoer is someone that is only concerned about the external, the ritualistic religions where they see themselves as pleasing God because of their works and their deeds. And then he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now the phrase mutilate the flesh is specifically talking about circumcision. And what do we know about circumcision? Well, according to the Bible, circumcision absolutely illustrates man's depravity. It illustrates man's need for a savior. Circumcision illustrated man's need for a great sacrifice. It was supposed to be an outward reflection of an inward reality that you've experienced the gospel, that you've experienced life change. But for the Judaizers, following the rules, making sure the external was really clean, they were all about giving the glory to themselves. Here's the idea that every single person in this room and every single person on the planet gives glory to something. Every single person here, every moment of every day is casting the weight of who they are upon something. Every moment of every single day, you are boasting about the greatness of something. Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3, if you would go down to verse 18, he actually is referring back to the Judaizers as enemies of the cross, it says. And so typically we give glory to one of two people. Either we're going to give glory to me or we're going to give glory to God. Right? Giving glory to me, why do we do that? The reason we give glory to ourselves is because we love control. Right? We love to be the one calling the shots. We love to have the authority to do whatever it is that we want to do. Or we can give glory to God. And why would we give glory to God? We give glory to God because of his greatness and his graciousness. Because he's done an amazing work in our life. But by definition, the one who you give glory to is the one that you view as most important. So there's two different paths or two different ways that we can extend glory. 
right? And the first one is this, it's horizontal glory, right? Horizontal glory. Horizontal glory is opposite of giving glory to God. It's opposite of where our glory should go. It's actually living the life just like the Judaizers did, living a life all about themselves, boasting about who they are, um, letting everyone know the weight of what it is that they've accomplished, about their personal trophy cases, about their greatness of their accomplishments, achievements, maybe it's possessions, whatever it is that we can glory in. Now look at verse three, it says this. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. What is horizontal glory? Horizontal glory is putting confidence in what you have done for God and hopefully by what you've done, by the trophies that you've built up, that you'll be able to come to a position before a holy God and say, God, here's what I've done. Look at the weight of who I am, God, and hope that that's enough to get you into eternity with him. So horizontal glory is putting confidence in what? It's putting confidence in uh, your performance for God. And so verse three, the first phrase says this, for we are the circumcision, it says. Now this phrase circumcision is a little bit different than what we saw in verse two. This is specifically talking about people who have experienced life change through the gospel of Jesus, that their hearts have completely been transformed. And so because this church has experienced the gospel, they are now in a position where they can do two things according to verse three. They can worship by the spirit of God and they can glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the truth for everyone here is that every single person here is a worshiper of something. It doesn't matter if this is, if you've uh, grown up in church your entire life. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've ever been to church. The reality is, is this, is that we're all a worshiper of something. And what does worship mean? Worship is the process of ascribing worth to someone or something. That who gets our worship is by definition the one who's going to receive our glory. Now, whoever gets our glory is getting the weight of who we are. Whoever gets our glory is, re- is putting us in a position where we're going to boast about that thing over and over again. So in verse three, we see the word worship and we see the word glory. We can worship by the spirit of God and we can glory in Christ Jesus. The word worships and the word glory are uniquely tied together because every time you worship something, you're boasting about it. Every time you worship something, you're giving glory to it. And the challenge that we have is the reason that we battle giving horizontal glory or worshiping ourselves or um, demonstrating the weight of who we are or boasting about ourselves is because if we're going to be honest with one another, the reality is, is that we want to be God. But we want to be the one who has total control, who, has, who gets to call the ultimate shots to do whatever it is that we want to do. And so horizontal glory is worshiping something besides God that you find self-satisfaction in. And so whatever is in the position of glory in your life, you will make sacrifices to. So each and every one of us have this position where we're going to put the thing that we want to glorify in that spot. And whatever is there, we're going to make sacrifices to it. So it doesn't matter if it's your job. It doesn't matter if it's possessions. It doesn't matter if it's your family. It doesn't matter if it's money. None of those things are sinful. Those are all blessings that God gives us. But what happens for us is that we take the blessings of God and we want to exercise them outside of what they were created to do. And all of a sudden we took things like family and possessions and we just made them sinful because they're in a position of glory in our life where we're finding our identity from the thing that's in this position. Or we're finding, uh, boasting and glorying in whatever is sitting on the throne of my life. And that's a missed opportunity for us. This horizontal glory 
is placing confidence in my performance for God. It's looking for eternal value in whatever it is that I've accomplished or whatever it is that I've done, building up my own personal trophy case and hoping that that will be great enough. And so what Paul wants us to understand as we jump into verse 4, he wants you to understand that if anyone's going to boast about their own confidence in the flesh or their own personal trophy case, it's going to be him. Let's take a look at it in verse 4. It says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. What does Paul want you to understand? Paul wants you to get this, that his personal trophy case is greater than yours. That if we're going to talk about wins and we're going to talk about stats, that his accomplishments are greater than ours. So he's like, if anyone's going to boast in the flesh, if anyone's going to have horizontal glory and, and constantly throw the weight of who they are around and boast about their personal greatness, it's Paul. He wins that battle every single day. Now let's look at verses five and we're going to see the list of his personal accomplishments, his personal trophy case. It says this in verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now there's one word in this text, in, these, in verses five and six, that sum up Paul's uh, entire trophy case. And it's found in verse six. And the word is this, as to zeal, it says. Now the word zealous means to be passionately committed or devoted to with great enthusiasm. But what are you passionately devoted to? What are you committed to? I was told last week that I have just a few weeks left since I've been here for almost two months to pick, one of my, pick what team I'm going to root for, right? I was, told, I was told that last week. You have a limited time, all right? I can choose between Duke. I can choose between uh, the uh, North Carolina Wolfpack or the NC State Tar Heels. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just making sure you're with me, okay? All right, that's the reality. I, I hear that there's passion here about our teams. I love that because I love winning, all right? And so I'm pretty sure some of you do too. But here Paul is saying that he's passionate about something very specific. And what is it that he's passionate about? It's not the gospel yet. He's talking about his own personal trophy case. What is it in verse 6? He says, I am passionate as to righteousness under the law. Meaning this, that Paul's passion was Judaism. That was all about the rules. That I'm going to live under the umbrella of Judaism and I'm going to follow all the rules. And he was passionately committed to it. And here's the truth, is that Paul's passion for Judaism puts our passion for the gospel to shame sometimes. He was so devoted to Judaism on such a high level that our devotion and our enthusiasm and our passion for the gospel doesn't look too great next to Paul. But here's the truth, is that being zealous is a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, Paul was passionate to Judaism. It says in verse 6 that he was all about righteousness under the law. But because he was passionate to him, passionate about Judaism, he was also passionate about what was against Judaism. What does it say that he hates in verse 6? It says that he's a persecutor of the church. So Paul loved Judaism. He was passionate, committed, devoted to it. But he also had a hatred for the gospel. He was passionately committed to what? According to verse 6, persecuting the church. And so what does it look like as a believer in Jesus to have passion for the gospel? Please understand this. If you're going to be zealous for the gospel, you're going to be passionate about the things that God loves, and you're going to be passionate about the things that God hates. 
And the reality for us is that we sometimes love the things that God loves, but we really battle hating what God hates. And the reason we fail to hate what God hates is because we, live, we love sin so much and we fail to understand how great our sin is against a holy God. What is sin? Sin is giving glory or finding self-worth in anything other than God. Right? We already talked about that. It could be a job, it could be a family, a possession. Whatever it is that you're giving glory to or throwing the worth of who you are upon it and not being God, that is sin. And so if we understood how great our sin is, we would understand how great the cross of Christ is. And here's the truth, is that you will never hate what God hates until you truly realize that it was your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm not talking about us making our sin as a whole, saying, yeah, our, all our sin combined, the world's sin combined, put Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about you specifically coming to, re- to realizing the biblical truth that it was your sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross, that it was Josh Tovey's ugliness for love for sin that put him on the cross. And the battle that we face every day is how in the world can we confess with our mouth that we love God while all at the same time loving what God hates. Right? We love what he hates. We say, God, I love you, while all at the same time, in the same breath, maybe go and we participate in the weight of the sin that put him on the cross. It doesn't work. We need to make the cross of Christ personal. For you as an individual, you need to grab a hold of that. So horizontal glory is my best attempt at performing for God to gain a right standing with him. And the trouble that we have is that every single relationship that we have on the planet is based on performance. When you think about your relationship with your boss, you don't want to do things to upset your boss because you want to keep your job, right? Or with your spouse, you don't want to upset your spouse because you love your spouse and you don't want there to be a, a, a rift between you. I remember growing up um, with my brother Jason. We grew up in a little small town in Michigan, and uh, we lived in a ranch-style home. And it was in this home uh, that we had uh, these big hills on the side. All right, my parents went away one weekend, and my dad gave me one job. He says, can you take one hour and mow the lawn for me this weekend? I said, yeah, I can do that. My brother and I hated mowing the lawn. Hated it. It was terrible. Okay? And the reason that we hated it so much is because of the hills, right? Because, you know, I'm five foot six. Um, I was five foot six in sixth grade. So I haven't grown in 16 years, okay? I thought when I turned 30 that maybe I would hit that growth spurt where I could at least be five nine. I thought that'd be pretty cool. But so on the side of the hills, when I would mow the lawn, my arms are all the way up like this, right? So I'm using my entire being to push this mower up the hill. Well, my dad came home that weekend And guess what I forgot to do? Mow the lawn. And my brother and I were in a position with my father that we loved him dearly. And my dad didn't really yell at us ever. He didn't really have to discipline us in a firm way because how it was for my brother and I is that we did not want to disappoint dad. And so when my dad came home, he realized I didn't mow the lawn. I didn't do the one thing that he asked me to do. And he changed his clothes, went outside, and started mowing the lawn. And so what did I do? quickly ran out there, grabbed that mower from him, and I finished the job. Why? Because I don't want my dad to be disappointed with me. Right? That my performance of what he asked me to do that I didn't follow through on means that he's not going to be happy with me. And the, pr- the problem that we have is this, 
is that every relationship we have on some level is based on performance. But please get this, that our relationship with God is not based on our performance. And it's some things that we really need to understand and wrestle with, right? And so what Paul is doing in Philippians 3 is he's comparing Christ's righteousness to human righteousness. He wants you to get it. That Christ's righteousness, you can't even compare human righteousness to it because Christ's righteousness is so amazing, right? Why? Why is human righteousness never relate or compare to Christ's righteousness? The answer is because even our best trophies, our best achievements, the best things that we've ever done, our best possessions are still filled with the thing that God hates, which is sin. So God has the standard, and we never hit a standard. We never reach it, because even no matter how great we are, we always fail because of our love for sin. Scott shared with us last week, Isaiah 64, verse 6, which says this, that our good deeds are filthy rags to God. Right? That our goodness, we think it has value. We think that if we do certain things, that God's going to be pleased with us. And the gospel doesn't work that way. And so back to the text. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul's going to go through, we already read it, but we're going to work through it quickly. His greatest accomplishments, his greatest trophies. Now what's unique about Paul is that three of them are inherited and four of them are achievements. And what he's listing in verses 5 and 6 are ways that he tried to gain salvation. So let's take a look at it. Verse 5 says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he tried to gain salvation by ritual. Then it then says in verse 5, that he was of the people of Israel, that he tried to gain salvation by race. It then tells us that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He tried to gain salvation by rank. And Benjamin was a big deal. The first king of Israel, King Saul, if you go back to the Old Testament, came from the tribe of Benjamin. When the um, tribes were divided and received land, it's the tribe of Benjamin that received the holy city, Jerusalem. So being from the tribe of Benjamin was weighty. You could boast about that. It was a big deal. But the reality is this, is that our family status does not impress God. He also tried to gain salvation by a tradition. He says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It then says he tried to gain salvation by religion. It says as to law, he was a Pharisee. Paul was one of 6,000 Pharisees. One of 6,000. He was a rule follower. He was a member of the elite, influential, and highly respected group of men who lived to interpret, guard, and obey the law of God. It was a big deal. He then tried to gain salvation by sincerity. It tells us at the end of verse 6 that he was blameless. That everyone around him looked at Paul and said, man, that Paul, that guy's blameless. If I could be like anyone, I would choose to be like him because he's an amazing man. Now, the battle that we have when we, when we read through Paul's personal trophy case is that we can't relate with that. Like being from the tribe of Benjamin, that's great, Paul. You know, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, awesome. That doesn't mean anything to us, right? And so I want you to take a moment and I want you to brag about yourself. Not out loud, just to yourself. If I asked you this question, what are the greatest things that you've ever accomplished? What are your personal trophies, the things that you've done that make you unique, that are easy for you to boast about, that are easy for you to glory in, how would you answer that question? The things that you've achieved or the things that you've accomplished. When I think of a person who's accomplished a lot, I think of Steve Jobs. 
Right? Steve Jobs died last year. Right? Steve Jobs was the CEO of Apple. Right? And his ideas and his skill set have changed how technology is used today. Right? Many of you probably have an Apple product in your purse or in your pocket or at home. Right? The reality is, is that he's done a ton of things. Steve Jobs proclaimed to be a Buddhist. And in our world's eyes, just like it was for Paul, when the world would look at Paul and say, he's blameless, he's an amazing man, people would say that about Steve Jobs. Like, he's brilliant. And here's the truth. A brilliant man without a savior doesn't look too brilliant. That Paul's, or that uh, Steve Jobs' greatest accomplishments, even as smart as he was and as great as the ideas that he had, he was still incapable of taking care of the biggest need he had, which was the need for a savior. So Paul wants us to understand this, that our performance for God does nothing for God because our performance for God has nothing to do with Jesus. And horizontal glory excludes the cross of Christ. Horizontal glory excludes the gospel of Jesus. It's all about us. The focus is in on what I've done. And horizontal glory is finding confidence in what you've done for God. And so what Paul is ready to do, Paul is ready to move beyond his own trophy case. He's like, I got to go somewhere else. This isn't working, right? All my accomplishments, that his trophy case is bigger than everybody else's, all his stats, all his wins, all the things that people envied about him. He's like, I got to go somewhere else with this. This is not working. And so we're answering the question, who receives the glory in your life? And let's see what Paul's response is in verse seven. He says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul's done with horizontal glory. And so what is he doing now? What path is his glory taking? It's vertical glory. He's pursuing vertical glory. See, vertical glory is opposite of horizontal glory. Horizontal glory is finding confidence in what you have done for God. Vertical glory, though, is finding confidence in what God has done for you. What is it that he's accomplished? How is it that he's moved in your heart and in your life? And Paul's going to make some really large statements in this text, huge statements in, in Philippians chapter 3. He's going to get after it. And what is he doing? Paul is comparing the reality of what he's done, all his accomplishments, his amazing trophy case, versus what it is that Jesus Christ has done. And he's saying, you know what, man, I am done with my personal trophy case. I am moving beyond it. It's no good. My stuff is junk. I'm done with it. And so he's putting us in a position where we need to ask this question. Are you willing to give up your personal greatness for eternal life? Are you willing to say, you know what, man, I'm done for living for the glory of me because I want to gain eternity and I know that is only found in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So the question is, how would Paul answer it? How would Paul answer the question, Hey, Paul, are you willing to give up your personal greatness for eternal life? Look at verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may what? In order that I may gain Christ. So what are we losing? We're losing absolutely everything earthly to gain absolutely everything eternal. Can you resonate with that? It tells us that he gained Christ. And verse 9 says that he was found in Christ. Amazing text going on here. Or that he lost him but now has him. So you have to decide, is Jesus Christ worth it? Are you willing to give up everything because it's worth it to know Jesus? Are you willing to go after that? 
What was the answer for Paul? Answer is yes. And what did he count his trophy case as? According to verse 8, he counted it as rubbish. The word rubbish here literally means waste. It means manure. It means excrement. So he counts it all as waste in order that he may what? According to verse 8? In order that he may gain Christ. So you have to decide. What is more important today for you in this moment? Earthly gain or eternal gain? And the battle that we have is that we look at what Paul is doing. We're like, man, I really, I see that Paul is willing to give up everything, but does that mean that I have to? The answer is yes, because his stuff was rubbish to him. We have to come to the same conclusion. But what happens for us is that we find ourselves getting discouraged by what Paul is doing. Why? Because we know that if we want to do what Paul Paul's doing, we have to give up our personal trophy cases. We have to say that we're going to be done. We look at what we lose, right? So we get discouraged by what we're losing. Here's the battle. We've got to stop being discouraged by what we're losing and start being encouraged by what we're gaining. That we're gaining everything eternal. Everything eternal now becomes mine. Why? Because of the amazing acts of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And the problem is, is that we want both. We want to live, we want to live for the glory of me and we want to live for the glory of God. We want to live for horizontal glory and we want to live for vertical glory where we're in a position giving glory to God. And why do we do that? What does that mean when you say, you know what, I want to live in both? It means this, that you love God's stuff, but you don't love God. It means that you love the blessings that God provides you, but you're not in love with your Savior. Can you resonate with that? I want you to understand this as well, that I'm a firm believer that the gospel of Jesus Christ redeems our trophies. That these things that we thought were all about the glory of me and making me famous and making my name known and reflecting how great I am, the gospel's so powerful that it can redeem your trophies. And all of a sudden what happens is your trophies, like your job and your family and your possessions and whatever it is that you once loved, you can still use it for the sake of the gospel. That the gospel can redeem those things to reflect our Savior, to reflect the amazing work of Jesus. And all of a sudden you're in a position now where you can make much of Christ and you can make him famous through all the blessings that God has given you in your life. Verse eight, we learn that we can gain Christ by losing all things. Verse nine, it says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So by gaining Christ, what happens? I'm found. I'm found in who, according to verse 9? I'm found in him, it says. And if I'm found, what does that mean? It means at one point that I was lost. Right, ever lost anything before? Right, I was um, telling the first service, uh, at Christmas time, we come down here the last four years for Christmas. This is before I was uh, on staff here. And uh, I came down at Christmas time. My wife, Stephanie, got sick. We're in the hospital at Christmas here. And uh, she got out the day before we had to leave, fly home to Michigan. So we got in the plane and we flew home. And we were getting off the plane. And I was, she was feeling terrible. And so I was making sure I had all her stuff. And amidst helping her get off the plane, I left my iPad in the pouch in front of me. Right? So I donated my iPad to someone else. Right? Losing stuff's no fun, right? But the joy of finding it, and what's true for me and you, is that we didn't even realize we were lost until Christ chose to find us. Until he chose to bring us to himself. That we now gain him and are found in him. And what is ultimately what does being found in him mean? It means that you have a right standing with God. 
that you have righteousness, the thing that you were pursuing and the thing that you were after your whole life through your own personal performance and your own trophy case has now been given to you, not by what you've done, but by what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Verse 9 also tells us not only we found in him, but the, and we receive righteousness from him, but that we get the gift of faith. Or do you realize that faith is a gift? The fact that you can respond to God is a gift. That's not of yourself either. What is faith? Faith is a gift from God that is total dependence and trust in Jesus. What am I trusting in? I'm trusting in Christ with my entire being. I'm laying my whole being at his feet. I'm giving every part of my life to him, the big things and the small things. And you're like, Josh, I have to give him the small things too? The reality is, is yes. Because if I keep the small things, those are small ways for me to live in the realm of horizontal glory. Those are small ways for me to live for the glory of me. Those are small ways that I can demonstrate the weight of who I am or I can boast about my greatness because I love control and I love to have the authority. And so by faith, we're giving everything over to Jesus Christ, handing it all over, which puts us in a position where we can now be obedient to him. Obedience is a response to the grace that God has granted me, which results in me pleasing him. How do I please him? I, resp- I, I please him by responding to the grace that he has that he's given me, and then I live a life in light of the position that he's placed me in, that I'm now righteous because of his amazing work. And verse 10 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, it says. What did Paul want to know? According to verse 10, he wanted to know him. The him is the person, the work of Jesus, the one, that he, the one that he was found in, the person that he gained. He's talking about a deep level of fellowship with his Savior. He's not talking about head knowledge. He's not talking about just knowing about Christ or studying and learning about Christ, but he's talking about a lifestyle that he wanted to live a life on mission for the sake of the gospel, that he wanted every choice that he ever makes to be affected by the work and the person of Jesus. He wanted to experience Christ on the deepest level possible and have the deepest possible union with him. What else did he want to know according to verse 10? He wanted to know the power of the resurrection. Right? Paul knew a lot about power. Paul grew up in, Paul was living during the Roman times and Rome ruled the world for a long time. All right, a long time. But Paul knew that Rome, as powerful as they were, were the third strongest power, with sin being the second most powerful thing on the planet and the resurrected Lord being the number one power that's ever touched this planet. And why did he want to know the power of God so bad? Because he realized that it's absolutely impossible to live a godly life without the power of the Spirit inside of us. What else did he want to know? Not only did he want to know him in a deep fellowship way, not only did he want to know the power of the resurrection, but he wanted to share in his sufferings, it says. Listen, when you suffer, when hard circumstances come into your life, that's how you know if your faith is real. That's how, you, that's how your faith is stretched. Two weeks ago, Steph and I got to share our story with you a little bit, her six, years, six year battle with cancer. We found out two weeks ago that she was cancer free, and so we were really excited to share that with our church family here. And we would never have chosen cancer. I never would have chosen it for our life. But you know what's also true? On this side of cancer now, I would never not want to experience it because of how our faith has grown. 
We can look back over the battle with cancer and say, man, God has stretched us and pulled us in a million different ways, but it's because of cancer that he's allowed us to go through that desert that we understand how great he is. We have a deeper appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you can resonate with that. Some of you experience some really tough things. And I believe this, that part of God's curriculum for our life is to bring us through really hard things. That's part of his plan. That's part of his curriculum because those are the things that are going to stretch you and pull you. It's going to happen. But here in the text, when Paul says that I may share in his sufferings, he's not talking about experiencing hard circumstances. And you can go read through the book of Acts and read through all the horrible things that happened to Paul. All right, He experienced some rough stuff. But it's not talking about that. What's it talking about? It's talking about someone who takes a personal stand for the cause of Christ and receives suffering for it. That's what he's saying. When I, when I want to share in his suffering, he's saying, I want to make my life in such a way that's so great that I'm just being reflected or affected by the gospel, that I'm taking constant stands in my workplace for Jesus or my neighborhood for Christ, that I'm, re- I'm receiving suffering, I'm receiving persecution for it. Paul realizes that it's through persecution that he would draw close to the Lord. What else did he want to know? He says he wanted to become like him in his death. Verse 11 says that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. What is it that Paul wanted to know? It was the resurrection. What does the word resurrection mean? The word resurrection means to stand up. So what is Paul confessing? He wanted to give the spiritually dead a preview of what eternal life will look like while he still had time left on the earth. That he wanted to live, live life on such a mission, that he wanted to live life and on, on purpose for the glory of God, that others would look at him and say, there's something different about that. Right? Because Paul was walking amidst spiritually dead people. And I think if you've experienced the gospel and experienced life change this morning, you're in the same, you're in the same position Paul's in. The opportunity to live for the resurrected Lord. So here's the question. How do I know if Jesus is receiving my glory? How do I know if Jesus is receiving my glory? The answer is by looking at what you make sacrifices to. What sacrifices are you making? So I want you to understand this, that the, the fact that you can respond to God at all, the fact that you can put Jesus Christ in your glory position, the fact that you can have faith in him, these are all acts of God's grace. What does God's grace do? God's grace removes all removes all the pride from my life. God's grace removes all the focus off my performance and puts it solely on the performance of Jesus. And so because of grace, I can be done with my personal trophy cases, building up how great I look for the glory of me, and I can now boast in the greatness of my Savior. See, that is all grace. And what's amazing about Philippians 3 is that God's grace, or the word grace, does not show up at all in the text. But what I know what's true is that the results of grace pop up everywhere. The results of grace are there. And so what is grace? Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace is unconditional acceptance, meaning, meaning this, that God loves you as you are, that you can never step outside of God's love, that he has the desire to know you or a desire for you to know him in an intimate and personal way. And you can say, Josh, you don't understand. My sin is so deep. Please get this, that God's grace is deeper. Josh, my sin, it's incredibly great. God's grace is greater. His grace is amazing. His grace changes everything. Paul Tripp, who's just an author, said this on his Twitter account two weeks ago. He said, grace means you don't have to hide what's already been forgiven or fear what's already been defeated or earn what's already been given. Right? The results of grace 
are everywhere in this text. And I'm just going to review them out loud with you for a moment. God's grace shows up everywhere. The fact that we can worship Christ in verse 3 is grace. The fact that we can glory in Christ in verse 3 is grace. The fact that we can gain Christ in verse 8 is grace. The fact that we can be found in him is grace. The fact that we can have righteousness from him in verse 9 is grace. The fact that we can have faith in him is grace. The fact that we can know him is grace. The fact that you can experience the power of the resurrection is grace. The fact that you can share in his sufferings is grace. The fact that you can become like him is grace. God's grace shows up everywhere. And so what do we take away from that? We learn the fact that I can glory in Christ has nothing to do with me. The fact that I can worship Christ is not of me. The fact that I can have faith in Christ is not of me. The fact that I can gain Christ and be found in Christ and share in his sufferings and all those things is not of me, but it's of Jesus. And so what do we need to do? We need to stop boasting about our personal greatness and start boasting about the greatness of our Savior. It's time that we start putting that in action. And how do we do that? By worshiping him. By ascribing to him the worth that he so rightfully deserves because of his greatness and graciousness that he has given us. That we move from our own personal trophy cases and we move to living a life for the trophy of the cross because we know that's where life is found. The cross of Christ motivates me to live for God. And the cross of Christ is, is an invitation to experience life change. And God's grace is an invitation to renounce me and embrace him. It's an invitation to renounce everything that I've done and it's an invitation to embrace the greatness of my Savior. And I pray that your heart can resonate with that, that truth this morning. That you can, are in a position now where you can practice your righteousness on a daily basis because of that uh, work of Jesus upon the cross. So I want you to think through these two questions for me. What trophies do you have in your life right now that still need to be redeemed? What trophies do you have in your life right now that need to be redeemed? Another question for you. What trophies do you have in your life right now that you just need to lay down? That are like literally like just in the way. They're constantly getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus. They're constantly getting in the way with the mission that God wants you to live on and you just need to be done with it. What do you need to be done with? The worship team is going to come and they're going to sing a, a song for us. This, the name of the song is called God, You Are My God. And I want you to listen to a few of the lyrics that I'm going to read for you. Um, this song is completely vertical, meaning it's about us responding to the greatness of Jesus and telling back to him who he is to us. Right? So here's uh, a few of the phrases. It says this, that no praise can define you. No thought can contain you, God. No light can outshine you. No power can defeat you. And then it goes on to talk about how he is holy, how he is glorious, and how he is victorious. And if you've experienced life change this morning, this song is a song of declaration. And if you can resonate with the truth of who he is and what he's done, I pray that this song will encourage you as we have an opportunity to declare this song to our King.